Hello, bonjour, ni hao, como estas? This is John James and welcome to Champagne Strategy. This is a red pill business podcast which deconstructs world-class strategy focusing on growth, marketing and sales with just a sprinkling of tech and champagne. It's my job to find the best people in the world and convince them to be interviewed for the benefit of all. Listen to this episode if you dare, but you've been warned, there's no going back. An overlooked way to quickly grow a business is to simply acquire the customers from another business. And it's overlooked because traditionally, this has been the exclusive domain of investment bankers and management consultants from large companies who deal with other large companies. But there's a groundswell of new activity in what's called the micro acquisition space, especially within the tech scene. And acquisitions are frequently used by these tech companies to buy capability, patents, and for many other reasons, other than just being a lever for a simple earnings boost. So we talk with ex-M&A specialist, former real estate salesman, army cadet, investment banker, and now founder of a medical service company, Peter Lee. And he exposes the M&A industry warts and all, never shying away from a good dose of self-deprecation and telling it like it is, as you'll quickly find out. So you'll learn all these dirty tricks and the conflicts of interest and tactical plays that go on in this tight-knit, murky world. So if you've ever wanted a crash course in the world of M&A, or you're looking to be acquired, or even thinking about acquiring another company, this is a must-listen episode. What does Mum Champagne and M&A have in common? What is the similarities between real estate and investment banking? And what is the old-school M&A space like versus the future led by tech companies? You'll learn all the basic stages of the M&A process and do's and don'ts and things to look out for. And we'll also discuss uh, a recent thing that happened in news, which was around the AGL rejection of founder of Atlassian, Mike Cannon-Brooks' takeover bid. And don't worry, we don't really get into a technical discussion here about finance or legal jargon, but we stay on more of that strategic decision-making level throughout the interview with lots of practical examples, mostly from Peter's experience, which is predominantly in the Australian business scene. So if you don't learn something from this episode, you haven't been listening. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Lee. I was I wanted to talk about mum for a sec because um, I always uh, it was my tight ass strategy where uh, when you're at Dan Murphy's and there was like four or five like tier one champagnes that you would I don't know if we call them tier one but like like the mum the the moe the um, the other ones and I was just like all right this is always five bucks cheaper so I'll I'll get away with it so um, anyway that was my my little bit of a how to look like you're, you're sort of gifting something of value. Yeah, well, you know what? Um, I used to not like it, to be honest. And it was always a bit weird with qualities. It had this very weird tang to it. It was a bit cloudy. And the new chef de cave or, or um, mm -hmm. chief winemaker, as they called, he came in recently from another house and he's really improved the quality. So now it's actually, I would say, almost better than some of the more expensive ones. So, like, I'm, I'm a big fan now. Yeah, um, right. Perhaps it gets a bad rep, but hey, that's, it's a value buy for me, for sure. When did he, when did he, when did he join? Was it Three or four years ago. Three or four I, years I think ago. Okay. I, I'm trying to remember his name. I was just doing a bit of Google research there, but some of the champagne nerds and I were talking about it. I really can't remember, but yeah, look, they've got a lot of plantings or, or vines in, in some of the best areas. They call them Grand Cru areas, which is just a village or a grand village um, 
where traditionally the soil is a bit higher quality, a bit more chalky, you get a bit higher quality. And this is traditionally speaking, higher quality grape. And for that reason, the, the grapes are a lot more expensive. But only the old houses have this because it's like prime real estate. You know, obviously you can command a lot higher price for your grapes. So it's very lucrative. But yeah, that's the history behind this Grand Cru, Premier Cru or or just normal crew in France. Um, but it's <laughs> it's a sort of almost cabal of um, old people have vines. Because literally they have to rip yeah, up these yeah. vines every 15 years anyway because the yields diminish with older vines. So it really doesn't matter. Um, yeah, but the right. soil, that's the thing you can't change. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I mean, I was I wanted to I wanted to have a conversation almost talking about like Aldi champagne and um, the, the sparkling that's coming out of Tassie is, is phenomenal at the moment. And... Um, and I guess that was a bit of a segue into M and A, just because it's, sometimes it's about finding value and um, and, and, and in transactions, because really sometimes it's not the thing that looks the prettiest that's the best. And um, there's there's a lot of value when when you're sort of trying to look for for the right targets, and you got to be smart about it. And sometimes you just don't want to be falling for um yeah falling for the couple all that marketing spin that they yeah, on top, right? <laughs> right? Which exactly, exactly. Well, it's funny. It's a very moneyball approach. Like once you take. Uh, away that sort of human bias those layers of what is intentionally oh, sure. put in by people such as myself yeah you make a more rational decision but there are very few people do that from what i can see i, I watched moneyball for the first time in so um, it, this was, no not this last year yeah late last year it's completely changed my life yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it's like this is what i've been doing all, all along so this is fantastic pretty much so, um but again yeah, very unpopular yeah. it goes against human nature people hate it <laughs> it's like science is not sellable yeah, yeah. always you know yeah, yeah. Also, as the employee, you don't want to be known as the person with the weird throat. So. No, no, no. Sort of that broad argument, and I've mentioned this book a couple of times, Probabilistic Thinking, and Annie Betts's book about this, like placing bets based on probability as opposed to pretending that you have the oracle, the all-seeing sort of truth that you can rely upon, which you know, arguably nobody mm. has anyway. So There you go. <laughs> Getting into finance. Look, thanks for taking the time out. Yeah, I know no you're worries. really busy uh, with a lot of stuff. And no. I know we had to reschedule this a couple of times. But yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, let's let's kick off. Um, actually, just before just before we get into the meat and bones, could you give me a bit of a... Like, if, if you were to describe your audience, would you say that, that they're more likely to be interested in sort of the sell side of things or that they've got a business that they would want to sell or they'd like to buy? Uh, we can we can touch on a little bit of both. I helps. reckon more on the buy side, yep. but because you know I'm using it as a growth lever to grow a business. But yeah, yeah, you know I think on the flip side, knowing what things will increase your value, and this is what I talked to Daniel McCarthy about uh, about unit economics, knowing what things can contribute to value that someone perhaps such as yourself who's really into M and A would be looking at, peel away all those those sort of facade layers and getting down to like the financials and what things you look at, I think that's really interesting as well. And then I think broader as well, how we categorize direct competitors, indirect competitors, and and look at like a top-down versus bottom-up um, market analysis, that really sort of plays into what the value could be in anyone's perspective yeah. at the time. And yeah, in a, in a previous life, so throughout university, I used to be uh, working in real estate and uh, I used to help uh, with my parents work with a real estate agency there. And I have to say there's absolutely not a lot that separates real estate agents with investment bankers and who uh, people who are flogging companies are the exact same kind of people who are <laughs> flogging properties. So, yeah, and the same tips and tricks, the same same sort of, you, you do the things to polish the company up for sale, the same things yep. you do to polish up a property, uh, always, always sort of highlighting the good parts and uh, 
making the, making the buyer look for the hot bad part. So it's all well. It's I all speak the same. to a friend, um, and I got a lot of marketers who sort of become disenfranchised with you know creating value for companies when they don't share in that value. And um, if they're really good at what they do, and I had a friend recently who was sort of in that sort of transitioning phase from a job, and he was like, oh, I was looking at the business broking market. Obviously, he's reasonably savvy, and he, he just went to these and looked at some of these businesses, and they were just like terrible. They're just trying to flog a, a dead cat for you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> an unrealistic multiple and uh, he was just like oh my god there's no good businesses to, to purchase i'm like well if your business is valuable it's creating really good cash why would you sell it number yeah. one <laughs> like it's uh it's either like succession planning or you know which is very rare or it goes into the family or you know someone wants it so mm-hmm. by by very virtue no one's going to sell a good business absolutely um, yeah so. the best businesses usually are approached you, you don't yeah. usually put the for sale sign up absolutely no, and because as you do, it's like, well, what's wrong with it? Exactly, like, yeah. exactly. So you start thinking from there. Um, yeah. It's just like, you know, normal value. But okay, but over to you. Um, we wanted to talk about using mergers and acquisitions as, well, in this case, acquisitions mostly, um, as, a, as a growth driver for businesses. Um, now, I'll just give you some context because in the SaaS world or, or software as a service, uh, there are a lot of people who talk about purchasing you know everything from small as like a chrome extension which has like mm-hmm. maybe a couple hundred users that is in a sort of nearby um, product use case to your actual product through to these online marketplaces micro acquire um, mm-hmm. flipper is another one which lists you know smaller sort of SaaS businesses around the sort of one mil arr which can be purchased as like a a multiple mm-hmm, yeah. uh, of growth that's easy acquirable so you know that's the context i want to talk to you about i have to admit i don't know a lot about this area although if someone said what do you think of this company i'd have enough now to to maybe ask some hard questions and get to the, the nitty-gritty of it but again i don't have the financial acumen to, to or the legal acumen to to make that happen um so i really want to talk to you about m a fantastic no i think um just to kick off really the 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 principles that sort of surround like even acquiring something as small as a chrome extension right through to Slack getting bought out by Salesforce. A lot of the principles are one and the same. This thought pattern is very similar. Um, what you're dealing with is obviously a little bit different, but uh, at the end of the day, you you are trying to buy something and, and fold it into your own business. So, um, thinking about not just what what that company looks like today, but how does that company, how does that asset or company look like in your portfolio going forward, uh, is is a huge piece of work. And I think that more often than not, one of the big myths of M and A is that M&A is a big growth driver, but you see just as many companies spinning off things that they've recently bought um, just as fast as they've bought them. And a lot of the time, mergers and acquisitions don't, uh, acquisitions don't really create a lot of value. And I think a lot of the time, uh, CEOs are trying to create um, quick wins on the board or, or take out a competitor or uh, hit, hit sort of targets part of the, if you, if you look at their sort of um, bonus structure and you see if it's tied to earnings, it's a really, really easy way to buy yourself some earnings. Um, you just got to be really careful about M&A. And I think all of us get really excited about purchasing something. I, I do for sure. Um, I'm, we're currently in the process. Actually, we'll, we'll skip that for another time. But there's there's a couple of things that we're looking at in the pipeline. And um, my, luckily, I've got a CEO who holds me back and says, don't just go buy everything you see. Um, and, and, and sort of you can get into a bit of a frenzy wanting to wanting to sort of uh, with, with a bit of FOMO and, and just wanting to, to, to really buy at some competitors. Um, but really the, the valuation, what it actually means to you, sometimes you might buy something that completely sinks you as well. So um, no, no matter what price you pay for it, if it was worthless, it could be a potential um, risk to your business. So there's a, there's a lot of angles to it. 
No, I love it. Um, I really want to get into some of those questions because you've given me some ideas already. But um, <laughs> I think, you know, right in the news right now, Zip, um, is it buy now, pay later, sort of after pay. Mm-hmm. Um, they bought Zezzle or Sezzle or however you call it. Yeah, and, right. Yes, yes. And they got downgraded today, like 80% downgrade or something. And I was like, okay, well, you know, obviously they you can use M&A for a lot of or acquisitions as a, as a, a cover maybe for obfuscating some of the fundamentals of business and make it more complex and you have lots of components and then people look at your business going well it's what do you do you've got all these different income streams these different companies merged together do you think sometimes you intentionally use those um, businesses to like muddy the waters per se or? yeah well I mean I think I think everyone's well intentioned at the beginning and so I think Zip says all I mean I, I know people who work at Zip but um a lot of the a lot of the time, companies like to have a growth story around expanding uh, internationally, and there's a lot of work that goes into expanding internationally. And I mean, I can take for example, uh, one of the previous organisations I worked for at, at REA Group. Um, shortly before we I, I joined, we we acquired a Southeast Asia property portal business for, for close to a billion dollars, and. Um, I can assure you that's it's no longer on the balance sheet at, at REA Group in 2022. So you can follow that. You can follow the journey where, um, without without local area expertise, um, not understanding the local market nuances, um, investors in Australia generally hate on companies that 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 invest internationally. And you can see NAB sort of rolling out to the UK and then selling out of the UK, ANZ going into Southeast Asia, then selling out of our Southeast Asia. Um, the 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 pattern is quite um, quite scary actually, and I think really a lot of it is down to um, does your business model work in a new in a completely new market? Um, I mean, with, with Afterpay, they they've been quite successful in the US and and they've managed to get bought out by Block. So that's an example where um, nays, naysayers and people burned like me um, probably um, will probably have to eat their words. So it, it does work once they really understand. If you if you're lucky enough to acquire a team that really understands that new. Uh, new market that's that's fantastic and if you manage to retain those people then um, you'll do quite well so absolutely much better to acquire into a new geography if you can retain the team and they really understand the local area market but um, the worst thing you can do is acquire that um, business then impose the the australia or the american way of doing things into a new market and then and then losing that team as well it reminds so, me of bunnings going into um, the uk and doing the whole sausage sizzle thing and uk people are like well, what the hell yeah what the hell exactly. is that? Like, <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and and usually like if there's if i mean there's it goes it goes back and forth right there's there's a whole bunch of businesses that exist to roll out exist i mean rocket internet and all those those types of business which try to roll out existing business models into new markets but sometimes there's a reason why uh brits don't want to have sausage sizzles like on a saturday right there's in the drizzling rain outside yeah exactly there's a so you you want to you want to make sure you do that market research right um so on that though before we get into that um can you just tell us like um really simply what is m a is how is it different yeah. to JVs or licensing agreements, that kind of thing, just really basic? Um, so there's mergers and acquisitions, as you, as you mentioned earlier, and, and generally they re- revolve around corporate entities. So what I mean by that is you are buying the company in its entirety, which is the acquisition, and then in a merger, you bring two companies of equal size, typically, uh, together to form one entity. So that's different from an asset sale where you're sort of buying, um, say, like a factory off another company, uh, it's different to a joint venture where potentially two companies come together and, and pull their assets together to form a new venture. 
Um, and, and there are another sort of other levels of corporate partnerships that can take place. But um, the one that is most intensive, where where the bankers get paid the biggest bucks and the lawyers uh, run away with the most fees, is is mergers and acquisitions. Uh, and that's that's basically because the amount of effort and requirements that involve uh, that are involved in in acquiring a business, right from um, any legal liabilities you might have carrying with that company, uh, payroll liabilities, any outstanding litigation, you name it, that all comes with that business. The brand name, the trademarks, you get the good and the bad, and it, there's a lot to look under the hood the, the bigger the business gets. Sounds really messy. I mean, I've seen this happen before, and you know, they, you'd be surprised like how many different areas of law are touched when you, when you sell a business, and the <laughs> amount of risk that's involved, and everyone's trying to do due diligence about the sale, and it sounds, it sounds like a big undertaking. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what are the main reasons people acquire other businesses? Is it just to grow? I mean, you mentioned them before, but I've seen businesses in the tech industry, especially buy businesses and you're like, why are they buying this business for like $4 billion? And you're like, never heard of it before. And then you find out later, well, they're buying it because, you know, that business had lots of patents in a specific area that they wanted to acquire and then roll into some of their existing products. And then they'll just mothball their entity because it has no value to them apart from the patents. So like, is there a lot of like maybe more nuanced reasons why businesses would purchase other businesses? as opposed to just acquiring customers like those are two examples but what are all the different reasons why you would want to uh, acquire a business yeah so so i think tech companies have really changed the game in terms of acquisitions and and for in a, in a good way like old school m&a's usually was about buying earnings buying customers buying out your competitors going to a new market buying out your suppliers um, those kinds of things i think sort of your major tech companies have done something great in the M&A space where they're buying capability. And what do I mean by capability is if I think something as simple as like Amazon buying, and I can't remember the name of the company, but where the, where they're the autonomous warehouses with the little robots trying to move all the parcels around, like that, was, that wasn't a financial purchase, right? Like you, there's only so many warehouses in the, comp- in the world that you can sell these robots to. But now that they have the AI capability to move those boxes around, absolutely no one else can compete with Amazon on that, on that platform, right? So that that's that sort of capability and and the smart thing is a lot of these things don't get um and we can talk about regulation later on but a lot of these things weren't picked up by regulators previously so like something like buying facebook buying whatsapp at the point of time like whatsapp had like no revenue oh even instagram i mean it was the same people like a billion dollars for instagram i remember at the time and i was like i was thinking about it going i use instagram i was one of the early adopters i'm like yeah well there's a lot of reach but like you can't make money off this but obviously they they did (laughs) (laughs) I have to eat my own words. Yeah, exactly, and and so it's it, it's definitely the capability or like what have, having the smarts to think like what can I what can I do with this that they can really build build on what we what we already do, and so um, yeah, back to back to regulate regulators always look about sort of like um, how much more money would this company make would it become a, make it a monopoly, uh, but at that particular point in time, like WhatsApp was just an like a free app that people use to, to send messages to each other. So they would have said, well, people can text each other. So what's the big deal? And so, um, yeah, obviously, if the regulators could re- redo what they did, uh, I'm sure the world would be very different. But um, yeah, so there's, there's, there's little bits and pieces like that around um, building capability, which um, I, think, I think that's really the, the huge growth driver. What about vertical integration as well? Like some businesses like Tesla are very vertically integrated and they're sort of buying mines and leases to mines and maybe some processing plants to like uh, secure their supply uh, vertical um, to, you know, 
obviously block out um, supply to competitors, but also uh, because there's a short supply of some of these raw materials. So is that another reason? Or? There's no shortage of people wanting to buy out um, different parts of the vertical. And there's, there's good and bad reasons as to, to, to why you should do that. And so um, when you decide to buy another piece of the your supply chain, you are making a bet that you can deliver that part of the supply chain much better than your competitors. And so uh, if I think about any supply chain, how it's all broken into various bits and pieces, for example, if you're coals and woolies and you're, you're buying your own farms, um, at some point in time, you've got to then split your, your focus in terms of farming efficiency and versus retail efficiency. And it gets to a point in time where the incremental gain might not be there and you're actually best better off actually going to the open market and then squeezing your suppliers and, and being able to switch suppliers, um, which is what they did with the, the yeah, fuck you yeah. farmers milk, right? So, um, which, which then gives you that flexibility, right? So if you're, if you're the business that you bought, like produces, um, I don't know, we'll take milk, for example, like it, it costs too much to produce its milk. You've bought the business, you've, you're sort of stuck with that business and, and sort of wanting to prioritize that business. Whereas, um, it, if you're on the open market, you can always keep switching suppliers. So there's there's that that to deal with as well. So um, you do lose a little bit of that flexibility when you start vertically integrating, and then you don't want to become um, sort of too tied to 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 those components if there's flexibility. Just getting to how you would acquire something, and let's just think broadly here. No matter whether we're getting a Chrome app or we're looking, a friend comes to us going, "Oh, you know, we're in the same area, and I want to." get bored out or something, or I want to finish managing this company, all the way through to something maybe bigger. I mean, obviously, there's probably stages of of how I'd go about doing this that are pretty synonymous between all those different use cases, I'm guessing. Can you just run us through how that whole process works? Uh, I can talk about the worst, the worst of processes. So if you're, a, if you're an ASX 200 listed company, what you'll do is you'll wheel in some, some management consultants and investment bankers to pitch you a whole bunch of ideas. And if you can't think of your own... Uh, logical partners to to acquire in your space then you'll do that and then you'll probably end up buying a pretty trash company but um what what really that first phase is with that that anyone goes through is is the the target identification phase so thinking about and there's two components about it like like what is out there that's um exciting and, and that can really build on your business but also having an inwards look in your business and understanding like these are the things i do really well these are the things i don't do really well and going you know what there are there are other businesses that do that component um, quite well, and so, uh, for example, back at back at uh, REA, um, one of the things that we we knew that we did really well was was put pictures of property on the internet. But uh, one thing that we didn't really do very well was um, talk about sort of property valuations and provide that property data layer. So when people went on went on to the to the realestate.com.au website, there was not a lot of information that you could provide about a particular property. And so we we did a bit of a screen, looked at sort of who else was out there. Um, and looked at sort of okay, there there are there are really two players in this market that that make a lot of sense, and so um, we we picked one of one of them off, and uh, we we filled that capability gap. So that's that's sort of that identification phase. Um, the next phase really is the courting phase, and and sort of trying to get get an offer out. So you'll you'll approach the target, um, you'll you'll put through an offer. Usually, you come in with not a lot of uh, information about the business, so you you base it off everything that you do know. So we'll give you, say, two hundred thousand dollars, assuming that you have three hundred customers a month that purchase this widget, um, and and they'll say get stuffed or, or come back with a better price, or they'll say yeah, okay, that sounds good, and, and so usually that's 
um, that's kind of a non-binding indicative offer stage. So it's kind of a um, we'll give so you like a ballpark money. kind of yeah we'll give you like, a ballpark. We think you've valued this and we're willing to pay this. Yeah, and then subject to sort of making sure that um, your customers are real, the the zero account you're yeah. keeping actually has real money in it, all those sorts of things. And <laughs> and so you move into you move into that due diligence phase, and that's where. You, you're you're serious about buying the business, and and that particular point of time, you're you're really making sure that everything's legitimate. Like, there's there's no like crazy lawsuit that's sitting behind this business. Um, all the accounts have done correctly. It's been properly audited. Um, yeah. The customers actually like the business. Uh, they're not they're not churning like crazy. Um, all those little bits and pieces, you you really start digging into. And then once that's all all hunky dory, then um, there's really signing and closing, and you try to get that that deal done across the line, the money gets wired to uh, the happy seller and, and then you take on ownership of that business. Uh, and then the part that everyone forgets is post-merger integration. Um, and so <laughs> this is the part where you actually own the business and you actually need to fold it into your existing business. Uh, and, and it's actually something that's really, really underbaked, especially um, because lawyers and bankers have no experience in this and uh, executives just palm it off to, to the poor soul that's left with the operations with it and, and don't have much to do with it. But the post-merger integration is actually probably the one of the most important components of it. Um, and, and it's, why, why is that? If you want to realize the value of the... the yeah, so you want to make sure that you retain you retain the employees that you, you've acquired, especially in the tech space. Like if they if they fuck off in less than two years, then you, you're losing a lot of that IP, right? So that's, that's a really key important part. The culture is a big one as well. So, um, and that also goes with employee retention. Uh, I can I can safely say for one deal um, at REA, uh, there was there was there's a serious issue around the fact that the incoming employees had free breakfast in their office, and we didn't offer free breakfast. And I can assure you that um, we had to <laughs> we had to roll over and offer free breakfast for that particular office. So wow. Um, and then the other thing is screen envy. So if you if you're a software company and the uh, if one 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 side of the transaction has shittier computer screens than yours, then <laughs> Be sure are to you know serious? That is it, is it really that screens. petty? Like, are these deal breakers? Well, or? I think it's a culture thing. Oh, they're not deal breakers, but like, it's a culture thing. Wow. And people get shitty about it. So <laughs> maybe, maybe I could have told everyone to like quit complaining. But um, I think it's these little bits and pieces, and and also like, um, there's a bit of anxiety when you're getting bought out as well. You don't know what's going to happen to your job, uh, whether or not you're valued in the new company. You've got to play a whole new set of politics. Uh, that sort of thing, and so um, yeah, making sure people feel welcome, bringing them into the new company is a, is a really big thing. And I think that's that gets lost when when you sort of focus on numbers and legal contracts and who who's liable for what. Mm. Um, but but really making sure that that lands. And I think there's a lot of uh, poor HR teams that, that do a lot of the heavy lifting here that don't get recognised for for the work they do when they do it really well. Well, it sounds fascinating. I mean, I know from the ops work that I've done, um, you know, it's really easy to create a strategic plan and everything, and um, you know, it all looks nice. <laughs> and then when it comes to implementation, that's that's the nitty-gritty that's the hard part no one wants to yeah, do it nah, no one wants to do it <laughs> very few people can do it and i think it's undervalued as well like just at a market rate level i mean you tend to pay the strategy people way 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 higher rates than the specialists that actually have to do the work oh absolutely i reckon i could draw up a strategic plan for any industry <laughs> if you gave me a good good three-week crack at it so yeah, yeah exactly yeah, don't quote me on that one. Oh, shit, I want a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You mentioned the, the, the valuation side of things. Like, I'm really interested here because just recently, I know people wouldn't be familiar with this, but there's a company called Atlassian who uh, own a big VC firm called Blackbird in, in Australia and APAC. Um, mm. Obviously, they make that you know confluence product that's quite big mm-hmm. and they're probably one of our biggest tech companies, you'd, you'd argue. Um, and yeah. the, one of the board 
well, the original founders uh, made an offer for one of the energy companies, biggest energy retailers in Australia called AGL. And there were some very funny memes that went around. I'll, I'll send you one um, soon. But he made an, an offer, a formal offer to the AGL board. And obviously, when, when a, I don't know this process, maybe you can fill in the gaps. But when you make a formal offer, like they have to consider it and go through a process. And then they ended up rejecting it because um, mm-hmm. they deemed it wasn't in the best interest of, of the, the investors. So um, how does that work? Like, can you just make an offer to any business uh, willy-nilly or what kind of offers do they have to listen to and, and do certain things with and which ones don't they yeah absolutely so um yeah part of the part of the offer making phase is obviously demonstrating that you are capable uh enough to purchase the business so when you do draft a letter to 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 acquire agl like if it was me uh, i'd probably get binned immediately but uh if you're someone like mike cannon brooks obviously um you are able to demonstrate you've got the financial firepower to to do it, and they're doing it in conjunction, I think, with the Canadian Pension Fund, yes. from memory, and so um, they definitely have the financial firepower. So obviously, there's there's a willingness. It's almost like going into an auction, right? You got you got to make sure you look like you can afford what you're buying. Um, and, and so once once that com- approach happens, you, you either use a banker or um, if you know if you know the contact or go through a contact, you you can approach them. So um, usually it's a conversation first before um, an offer letter. But once it, once it gets to an offer letter on on the ASX, they've got to disclose that. So, okay. um, yeah, I uh, does that does that answer? Yeah, the question? and then yeah. and then what happens? So, like, like not everyone has contacts with certain board executives. Yeah, so, you, so how does you that would work? go through a financial advisor. Okay. So usually at, at the big end of town, you would try to go through a financial advisor if you uh, if you want to avoid paying um, exorbitant fees to a financial advisor. Uh, try and find the founder. So I think if you're at the smaller end of town, if you just go go direct to the. Um, yep to the CEO of the, of the business or, or, or their, their chair. And some investment banks are brokers for kind of deals like this, yes? So like you could, if you had an investment bank that you were, had a relationship with, you could go to them and they would do that for you? Or? Yeah, so most of the investment banks will have the relationships with the, the sort of your ASX 200 and or yeah. the, the CEOs and chairmen will return their calls. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so they'll, 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 that, that will be one sure way to make sure you're, you're, you're approached. But um, yeah, at that point in time, like obviously AGL's got the right to say that that's not a good offer. Um, so AGL's doing the thing where uh, most companies, when they buy up too many things, uh, are now uh, in the process of demerging. So they're trying to separate their generation assets from from their retail assets. So um, the, the shareholders have got sort of two paths, and obviously not providing financial advice here. But um, if they go down that that path, that's one one outcome. And then obviously the other outcome is. Uh, being completely bought out by by another company and and then having that company come in and and turn that company or uh, AGL around. Yeah, great. And um, just on that note, like, um, are there any? You mentioned them before. There's some misconceptions about this area. Um, I.e., you know, the implementation phase is is not as critical, and people walk away from it. Um, but it's really essential. Like, yeah. are there any other widely held beliefs around M and A that the orthodox view is kind of wrong in a way? From your experience, you found out that the opposite is sometimes true. I think. Culture is a huge one. I keep saying culture. Um, I know I, it's it's really interesting because like I, I grew up with a finance background, being very metrics heavy, would would can talk sort of hours on end about sort of different valuation methodologies. But at the end of the day, like um, the kinds of people that you're buying actually, and the businesses that sort of the culture that business has you that you're buying is probably speaks more than than the numbers that you can see um, in a spreadsheet. And I think that's something that I think when we talk about um, transactions. The only thing that people can really report on in the news is, oh, like that that business got bought by for like a 
50 times revenue multiple or this business got bought by like a two times earnings multiple that looks really cheap or um, those kinds of things. But if you dig a little bit deeper, like that 50 times revenue multiple might have like a, a, an amazing team that, that is smashing targets year on year. And that two times multiple might be cab charge or like a really old school, sorry for other listeners, yeah. um, a business that just basically uh, is an F-plus machine in a, in a taxi, <laughs> uh, if you've ever taken a taxi before, right? And so there are some pretty horrible businesses that look great on paper that generate a lot of cash, but are just on a downward trajectory. So mm. um, yeah, the, the difference between offering free breakfast at a tech company and a free breakfast at a, at a low margin energy generation company is, is the, probably the difference between um, your business being in existence and not. So I kind of get what you meaning here is this qual versus quant sort of, you know, I'm a big proponent of having both. You need some sort of fundamentals, but it doesn't, you know, the financial analysis won't show you the full story. Um, you need to layer on all these other things. Like, for example, uh, I can tell as soon as I go into a new client, into the, the, the floor of the office, just... I can tell whether they're growing or not just based on the, the mood of the business. You know, is there a buzz in the air? Are people sort of excited? Is there energy? And I know that seems really like Fakazi, you know, sort of like fairy yeah, dust yeah. sort of analysis, yeah, but it is yeah, absolutely. very indicative. It's very hard to fake that, especially mm-hmm. if you go there multiple times. You can't fake enthusiasm. Again, on the, on the flip side, the ones that are there, you can just smell the death. A failure is infectious. Don't touch the walls, kind of thing. And it was a joke, but but it's true. Uh, you go into some of these offices, and yeah. you just you can feel the the death. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, the the other thing is, I think, yeah, the the other thing that's intangible is really the customers as well. Yeah, really speaking to people who interact with this business, I think is is much better. I mean, it's it's, it's the exact same thing as sort of. Um, buying a house or buying anything you, you don't you don't listen to what the salesperson's telling you right like you you go and do your own independent inquiries do that do, does does that business sort of shaft its customers do they not return its phone calls like did i have to wait two hours to get a return call um like have i sort of am i like sort of their, their favorite customer but they've got to keep bribing me with lots of money to keep their business that kind of stuff like it all it all happens so yeah. Um, so, so tell me more about that because that's really interesting. Like, because um, you're kind of valuing from a customer perspective here, which is you know what Daniel McCarthy's doing with the whole uh, customer-based valuation methods. Like, they do a lot of mystery shopping and polling of customers mm-hmm. and qualitative interviews. So, is that something you would do as part of the process, perhaps just to get a bit of a reading on, take a sample of actual customers, interview them, and do a mystery shop yourself? Yeah. So the 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 yeah. shitty the shitty M and A practitioners like myself who who sort of just get paid to do a deal will absolutely not do this, and that's that's probably the difference between uh, what will be sort of best in class and, and sort of standard to be honest and this is something that's just not not done well and so um a, a person sitting in front like a lot of the time the investment bankers never left their office for the last sort of 55 days straight and they're just staring at spreadsheets so they'll see things like churn lifetime value your your earnings your revenue your costs your margins that kind of thing but they'll they'll never pick up the phone and speak to a customer and go like what is it like um dealing with this particular and and like there's there's nda reasons why you might not do that but i'm sure you can mystery shop your way through Mm. um but absolutely um that's just something that's just not done um and it should be done done more and also not doing if you can get away with it like not not sort of just calling the the customers that you get um referred to but sort of further down the list if you can get away with it as always it's always really good if you can get away with that because you'll find out once you buy that business, you, you will you'll you'll get the customer complaints, and you will will wish that you spoke to those customers before you bought the business. Yeah, good point. Actually, um, maybe this happens more in the private equity space or like private business space where 
you know, with someone's actual money on the line as opposed to, you know, being in a board and having other institutional investors in the company um, was a bit more of a diluted responsibility. Uh, you know what I mean? Like when I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't there's that saying with other people's money or something? Like OPM or something? I mean, yeah, I only do yeah, on the yeah, private, yeah. Um, privately owned the business space. And, you know, for them, it's like make or break. Like this is a huge decision. I'm going to bankrupt them and they're going to yeah. destitute or not. Or there's one or two business partners or three and their money on the lines, their reputation and vice versa on the other end. So you've mentioned some of these changes in the industry that have happened. What, what did it used to be like and what is it like now? Um, is there any new tech that is making this easier like i did mention mm. some of these platforms and micro acquire being one of them and a few others yeah. um what's changed over the years is it kind of gone from big institutions and a smaller sort of knit team that's very um clicky and it's been a bit more decentralized now or what are you seeing in your sort of your asx 200 or like your your major companies um almost nothing has changed so that's still very much just standard powerpoint presentation standard sort of lo- if you think about valuations for, for major companies, they always sort of put through sort of the three biggest, com- like closest comparable companies that sort of look like yours and say, okay, like you're not as big as this one and you're not as small as that one. So you're, you're there and that's what the valuation looks like. Uh, a lot of that hasn't changed. In in the tech space, I think you've seen obviously two things. One, you've seen just crazy valuations across the board, <laughs> um, but I'm not sure that's a technology change rather than sort of probably the, the outcome of too much free money in the market. Yeah, so the, the 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 new the new platforms are quite interesting. I haven't I haven't seen a lot uh, about sort of micro acquire and, and and the likes. Um, I think that that's that'll be an interesting way forward. I know there's a lot of um, FBA sellers fulfilled by Amazon for, for everyone um, that uh, I guess become businesses that do get picked up by mm-hmm. uh, businesses that go out and deliberately acquire those kinds of businesses. I think there's um, that's that's quite exciting that an entrepreneur can now. Um, not have to sort of found like a billion dollar unicorn to see a secure exit, but actually build something that's um, potentially a niche tool that solves a problem for, for a niche set of customers that can, and then eventually be, be, be bought out. So um, I had the, the fortunate ability to sort of see that happen to uh, someone I know, sort of have, have their business been bought out. Again, um, extension uh, not not a Chrome extension, but an extension to an existing platform, and actually, like I think it's, it was to a CRM platform, and it sort of either number one or number two in its space, and wow. um, to do solve a problem, and and sort of the 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 acquiring company needed to acquire more customers. I think both parties got a really good outcome out of that as well. So, um, yeah, that 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 all that all sort of takes place. But I, I think again, that goes back to that statement we had earlier on where. Um, once you put the for sale sign on, it's kind of a hard one. And so the problem with the micro acquire and the, and the listing sites is once you put your company up for sale, um, it's an awkward situation. And also uh, potentially the buyer universe and the seller universe is quite known to you most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually if you, it's very rare to sort of buy a business that you might never have heard of um, before sort of being introduced to that, to that business. So uh, I, I think not unlike other spaces, the, the selling and buying of companies probably hasn't evolved much like the selling and buying of houses other than maybe you're seeing that they are getting slapped on the internet like properties now. But um, again, it, it is a very murky, opaque world and it benefits both parties too. Like buyers don't want to um, look like they're paying too much and they don't want to sort of give away the negotiation position. Um, sellers sellers is the same way as well. But um, actually, no, so I, I want to take a step back though. I think 
with with TechCrunch, um, Crunchbase, ZB Insights, a lot of other um, Angelist. Yeah, Angelist. A lot of a lot of other sort of databases now. There there is a lot more information than ever before, and so I think it stops people from getting shafted in terms of um, getting getting a bad deal on the sell side. So if you are a seller, uh, I think there is more power to you. Um, and then if you're a buyer, I think I mean you're usually in a pretty strong negotiation position anyway. So. Um, that's probably the one the one little change. Uh, I've seen a lot of businesses create a business as an acquisition play, we call it. So they'll mm-hmm. create a, a niche and they'll have a competitor in mind or a, a player in mind of the market. They're like, we want to be acquired by them. So they'll intentionally create a business and go after a particular segment or cohort or something of the market. Um, and they'll build their tech stack or their infrastructure that would be fit very nicely with the uh, the, <laughs> the company they want to get acquired from. Um, and then, you know, they, they sort of become a, annoying enough to then get the attention of that business. And then, you know, that was their intentional along to get acquired. They didn't actually want to keep running the business and, and become bigger. Like, do you see a lot of that happening or... I personally think it's a horrible way to run a business um, because if your acquisition, um, your acquisition sort of universe is a sort of one or two potential acquirers, then and they both don't like you or you've pissed them off, then you've really you're like you're shit out of luck. Um, but like that, that's not to say that that does happen quite a lot, and you do see a lot of people be quite successful off the back of that. So uh, I wouldn't. I mean, there's probably enough arguments sort of going the other way, saying that um, is. That, that's a phenomenally great idea as well and um, that being smart about going about um, solving a problem that that original target acquiring company couldn't get into um, definitely in, in no means um, is, is a bad idea and, and sh- like I think you should go into the fact that if you are ever going to start a business um, there is an unfortunate outcome that you might actually have to run that business for a while before you get bought out. And I don't think you should ever come in for a quick win. Well, um, so you've got a caretaker period, so right? For like at least a year or sometimes longer than a year uh, where after yeah, you sell the business. Yeah, a lot of them, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of them, in, just going back to a sort of retaining talent, a lot of them have um, clauses where, yeah, usually it can be up to three years or, or, or more where, and you have to hit certain KPIs. Like if you're... Um, if you're a high growth business, you might need to hit certain revenue targets and those revenue targets might be out, out of your hands sometimes like due to internal politics or macro environment being allocated to you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, there, there are a lot of different um, circumstances there too. So um, look, being built to sell, like I, I think always have some sort of exit in mind. So obviously if you want to, I always have, have sort of a dual track. So you would always be able to, and what I mean by that is that there should always be some strategic acquirer in your space. Um, as, as is sort of the business I work at now. And then there's also uh, a public markets option. So you can, you can IPO and let, let other shareholders um, invest in your business going forward. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you did mention before, like some of the things that you look at, the qualitative measures, quantitative measures, crunching the numbers. So obviously you're looking at evaluation here. Um, and I don't want to get into that because I kind of already covered that. But is there any sort of tricks mm. of the trade that you've seen people, you know, maybe the dirty side of it where they try to inflate figures um, or make it look oh, more peachy, sure. and, and what kind of things do they do? This is kind of interesting to me. That it goes back to sort of dressing up your house for sale. So things like bringing forward revenue if you can. Um, so trying to invoice people earlier, and you can probably get away with it for a couple of periods of time. Uh, deferring expenses. A big wine company in Australia. I don't want to mention who they are. Apparently, we're booking <laughs> sales um, by shipping product overseas to overseas warehouses through you know their their owned intermediaries and you know, that was a sale even though yep. it was just sitting in the warehouse and so they use that to sort of like yeah, exactly. make it look better than it was and then they got caught out in the 
just well yeah so i mean an easy a, a less a less crafty way of doing it is just not um it's just deferring your advertising marketing spend like you can so so you, i think when you stop stop investing in the marketing advertising lever you probably don't it, it probably doesn't show for the next sort of two or three months so you can probably get away with it if you're really close to clearing out and so people think that your margins are fantastic but really that marketing spend wasn't optional um, so that's a big one. I've seen that quite a few times, and now I yeah, now I can pick so. it every time. I'm like, mm, you know, all the long term yeah, yeah, yeah. sort if of burn that... things get taken away, and it's just like, oh, let's just do lead Jenny or yeah. sort of you know to keep the wheels running. Yeah, the, a lot of the other time, um, what people do is they put in forecasts, and that when they sell a business, so um, so the bankers or, or the seller will be like, oh, this business is going to grow revenue ten times, and the cost base is going to be completely flat for the next ten years. And, and you know for a fact that, firstly, wage inflation is a thing. Um, you need a lot more people to service a lot more revenue. And you, as a business grows, you're going to have bigger issues. And so um, if you see anything that has like flat expense growth or, or expenses coming out of the, uh, the P&L, then run for the hills because that, that forecast is full of shit. <laughs> so, um, or you just interrogate it. But like unless, unless they discover a new technology that completely automates like half their job, then... Yeah. Um, that it's just completely untrue. Like your variable so, costs can't be that good, right? <laughs> They're kind of yeah, scale. exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can't ex- maybe maybe in tech there's some some rationale to that, but even then, you know, you got bigger systems, more maintenance, you know, privacy issues. Yeah, you're a hacking yeah. target. Unless you can convince your software developers to volunteer like one day a week of their time to work at your business, you're not really going to be saving money. Exactly. So. Okay, no, that's good to know. Um, so this is the usual kind of things. Like, I mean, I've seen this at a very small level. I was doing some work for a you know university at a, a small sort of restaurant, and I saw them. Um, not paying their suppliers, uh, so the, the food supplier, so they'd rack up like 90 days of debt, and um, they're doing all these other things like recycling things, and then I was like, oh, what's happening here? And then they end up selling, and um, then the, yeah. I mean, obviously that would have come up in... Yeah, actually, no, that's a good point. That that, that, that reminds me, um, quality of earnings is a huge one, and what do I mean by that is th- uh, there was a company that was bought where they had thought like all of their revenue was digital revenue, and actually a portion of that company's revenue was um was actually in selling like print magazines so i can't go into too much detail but uh, when you apply like a add a technology multiple to to money you make from a print magazine which has a gross margin to it you're definitely in a lot of trouble on the flip side i mean uh, i've seen a, a certain beauty retail in australia um trying to position themselves as a tech company um when they're just like an online retailer and uh, oh that happens all the time yeah, yeah that's a great one too yeah yeah i mean domino's for a long time pretended to be a technology company uh with their autonomous robot delivering your pizzas that never showed up as well um, <laughs> so every, you can you can get away with a lot of things with um convincing the market that you're you're both a tech company and some sort of infrastructure play or something like that so it sounds like you're obviously very knowledgeable in this area if i was going to go down this route say on a business or buy or sell side and i was trying to find someone who's very good at m a work what would i be looking for what are the hallmarks of someone who's really good in this space a bit more nuanced and by that virtue we would know who to avoid at the same time i would really interrogate the kinds of transactions they've done before and who they've worked with so if they can provide references that would be ideal so if they're if you're looking for someone to advise you on buy side look at the kinds of deals that they've advised that their client businesses on and if they seem to be like constantly sort of breaking records for like valuations paid then you should probably uh look for another advisor and i can't name names but there are quite a number of firms that are brand name that probably have caused their clients to pay 
uh, ridiculous prices for assets. And well, if you get a percentage-based fee, I mean, that wouldn't be of interest to like inflate values. And yeah, so on buy side, typically they they charge like a fixed fee, so oh. it, it avoids the percentage of sale. I think may, maybe there could be a situation where that does happen, and obviously that's completely poor incentive alignment as well. Well, what what happens is sometimes they're they're in a bidding contest, so you that financial advisor might be competing against another financial advisor and you only get paid on success, um, but not, not as a percentage. So if you're not bidding the highest possible amount, you won't win that asset. Sure. So it's actually more in their, more in their uh, need to sort of get you to bid pretty high for that particular asset. So look, we can talk offline about sort of who to avoid and who not to, <laughs> sure. not to a point, but um, so that- I don't want to get sued by an investment bank or a law firm, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the same thing happens in in every industry. Like to be fair, um, like in the marketing agency industry, the biggest names are the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the just ones there that make a percentage off media sales and, and they get on their commissions or value banks they're called, which is you know an aggregate yeah. um, percentage off spend. Um, so all they're looking for is like, you know, what's the budget of the client? Let's do anything to win the the, the account. And then once the account's created, like how do we make the most profit from this this fifty million mm-hmm. or forty million dollar budget and and then they just wash it through mo- lots of intermediaries and click yeah. a ticket and then, you know, it all comes back to the mothership. So, same sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think there are a lot of boutique or individuals um, who usually come with raving reviews. And um, if you're looking for value, that's usually a good place to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can hit me up on LinkedIn if you've got any questions. Funny stories in that respect. Obviously, you know, some simple advice here, do your homework, you know, dig into the the weeds a bit if you, if you really want a good deal and um and don't overpay for things <laughs> yeah 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 so well actually on on that in terms of paying for things um there there is a lot of methodology around around financial valuations and uh return on investment so if if you're not confident in that definitely speak to someone or get get advice from someone on that so um i know we've sort of been um hanging shit on advisors quite a lot <laughs> as well um and sort of it's, it's a lot easier sort of as an ex-advisor to, to do that but but definitely a lot, um, there is a lot of value in a good advisor and they could save you a lot of money. And obviously being an ex-real estate agent, it's a bit rich for me to say that as well. Um, but yeah, if you, if you don't understand your sort of peer comparables, you don't understand um, what is the sort of market rate for something, then definitely get external help. Um, don't go it alone. If you're selling, like the difference between good advice and bad advice could be couple hundred thousand dollars or more right so it's it's small biggies to pay for for good advice and unfortunately um because this this market is so um opaque and there's such little information being traded for good reason um knowing someone who's experienced who's, who's seen a lot of these deals come by and seeing a lot of the dirty tri- tricks and tips will help you really identify all the all, all the traps um that that will actually will actually help you a lot i think learning learning a lot of this stuff from scratch um, is challenging. I think the best place that you can be as an individual business is know your competitors and the customers of those competitors. That's something that only you can do and your advisor can't do. Uh, but the, uh, the, there's a lot of components in, and get a good lawyer as well. I can't, I can't stress that enough. Different context. I, I do a lot of work on advisory boards and generally there's, like, have you ever seen like a little committee created with people maybe not from the same company, but a really good lawyer from there, a really good M&A sort of consultant from here, advisor, and then sort of brought together into a working group to then you know, act as a, as a sort of internal, external hybrid team to to go through this process? Or is it you go to a company so, who does M&A work and you contract them and that's it? If you can source a, a team internally, do that. But a couple of things that are absolutely uh, non-negotiable in terms of uh, talent, you want a really good accounting advisor um, so someone who can really understand the book. So if you don't have that internally, definitely get one externally. 
uh, definitely get a good lawyer. If you don't have good in-house lawyers, um, which I think all of us can't afford, um, definitely get a good external lawyer. And then from a financial advisor perspective, um, yeah, definitely if you don't have an in-house M&A team, which most, most of us can't afford again, um, definitely get someone who has experience or and, and also rely on, yeah, if you've got board members or senior people who've, who've been through transactions before, um, their advice will be invaluable. I think that's, uh, this is this is kind of one of the games where you got to do it more often than not. I, I mean, you, the repetition helps mm. if, if that makes yeah, sense. Definitely. And so people can, people who've seen seen another one of these can, can tell you how, how it might end. Sort of fascinated by, by your story. I really like how you've done so many different things and now you're working at a, a telecare, the company's called. So it's like That's telehealth uh, business, which is you know booming. I know Kathy Wood has some of those in her investment ETF, uh, which is not doing so well right now. But anyway, not talking about that. Tell me <laughs> sort of what you're doing right now and what your current role is. Yeah, so I head up partnerships at Telecare. So Telecare is a, a specialist at allied health telehealth business. So we um, we don't do GP telehealth. So we're not GP to you or... Um, doctors on demand or anything like that. So if you're really sick uh, and you need to see a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, um, an endocrinologist for, for diabetes and the like, we, we'll be able to do that mm. for you. And so that's been um, quite a really good uh, journey that we've been on. So there's obviously some really good use cases with, with distance, with being able to see a specialist doctor is, is super, super hard in Australia. Um, and seeing a specialist doctor that's that's cheap um, is, is sort of just impossible. And so we, we've been able to find a model that works where we can use excess capacity, uh, whether it's a, a doctor that's sort of trying to fill in a couple of consoles in between their, their kids' breaks, uh, kids, kids' nap time, or uh, a psychiatrist who's got sort of a Sunday morning free who can do one or two extra sessions without having to head into the clinic, their own physical clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been able to find all that excess capacity in the system and, and bring that to patients, which has been excellent. Nice, I love it. Okay, now I always ask people, you know, what's a good book they've been reading? It doesn't have to be on this topic, but it's really changed your thinking for the better. Uh, and you mentioned one that's really interesting because I just watched um, his interview with uh, Lex Fridman. Lex Fridman is this um, sort of Russian-American guy who does this really good podcast, very deep interviews with some pretty big people. He uh, introduced, yeah. yeah, I watched that whole episode and listened to it anyway. And you just mentioned the book. So um, I'm actually familiar with this, but what do you think about this this Ray Dalio book? Yeah, so it's uh, a bit of a chilly read. It's, it's interesting from... Um from my perspective, being Chinese-born Australian, so <laughs> sitting on sitting on both sides of the fence as, as part of the, the Chinese Empire and the American Empire. But for, for everyone listening, um, this is uh, um, we're talking about Ray Dalio's book on the changing world order. Uh, so it came out uh, late last year, and it's talk talk in short talks about the U.S. Empire, uh, the British Empire, and the Dutch Empire, and sort of what led all those empires to rise and and sort of ultimately decline and obviously the the rising empire that, that we're all sort of talking about now is china and sort of what are the factors that might lead to to the chinese empire rising in this in this situation and it doesn't provide many uh sort of outtakes in terms of what to do with with all that information he's just dumped on you but um i guess that's that's for us to work out but definitely uh, an interesting one and and definitely uh, I, I finished reading it two weeks ago so then uh, heading straight from that into the Ukraine crisis definitely was a bit of an eye-opener. The hardest part is the psychological part where because in our lifetime we haven't seen anything different and these cycles extend more than one person's lifetime. Yes. Um, people forget. That's where it's like, well, yeah, well, it's not even people forget. It's like I was never born into this and neither, was my, neither were my parents. So, like, um, so I mean, my, our parents and my, my grandparents were born in when the US empire was in place, right? So, yeah. um, and, and so is, is all of ours. So um, 
that's sort of the world order that we all all know. But if you if you roll back another two more generations, that was the British Empire, mm. and so um, for them to see that completely switch and change would have been a huge fundamental shift in their in their sort of life as well. So um, unfortunately, I think that's it's one of those things where if it hasn't we haven't seen it happen before, it's hard to predict the next one. What about uh, favorite website resources that help you do your job better, or maybe <laughs> maybe not work related in this case? But uh, <laughs> uh, my friends are gonna my friends are gonna lose it. But um, I, I'm absolutely addicted to Ozbargain. What, what um, is Ozbargain? So for, for those who don't know, um, yeah, there's a there's a website where it's uh, it's just people post deals. So it's like someone's accidentally mispriced an iPhone by like three hundred dollars, and then oh. everyone like jumps on it or. Um, Oh, uh, like when those airlines it. make a mistake and they were selling like yeah, yeah, these... mistake tickets or things like that. I bought um, one of those Singapore Airlines mistake tickets to, to uh, France, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I got a return trip for yeah. like four hundred dollars or something. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so that's that. That just the amount of time I waste on that doesn't add up to the, <laughs> the amount of money I've saved. So that's actually really bad. It's just been a bad life decision going getting addicted to that. Um, so, so talk, yeah, talk about funny. acquiring really high value customers. Yeah, just you know, post yeah. on Oz bargain. <laughs> Look, uh, if I if I ever lose my job, I'll be beating down that guy's door and begging for a job. But he's he's kept it. Yeah. Okay. What about a piece of tech you can't do without on on a regular basis? So it could be software or hardware. Yeah. Actually, you know, you know what? Um, it, WhatsApp's actually become um the most sort of insanely important tool to to our business at Telecare. So probably giving a bit away. So we we have Slack for devs, but our doctors keep WhatsApping us all their requirements and we haven't yet worked out a way to um, work out. We can't get them onto Slack. They won't respond. To, like text messages aren't perfect. Um, Maybe someone really resonated with what we talked about today, what your advice on M&A, which you probably don't do on the side because you've got a full-time job, but maybe you have some good contacts you can refer people to, um, or they just want to you know, talk about more about what, some of the things you mentioned. What's the best method for people to, to get in touch without annoying? Uh, look, I think just um, hit me up on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way forward. Um, and yeah, look, I, th- if, I, I probably don't want to touch M&A ever again, um, but... I know a lot of people who who do M and A very well and um, have capacity, so and are, are very very intelligent people. So um, happy to happy to point you in the right direction. Great. Okay, so it's Peter Peter Lee P E T E R second name L I um, Melbourne Australia. You can you can find me at Peter Lee Seven if you really want to find the URL. But, um, okay. Well, uh, yeah. thanks for your time, Peter. I know you're a bit under the weather today, so I really appreciate um, taking the time Not out today to, to do this and um, have some more tea. I'm going to have some as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, thanks again for your time. Uh, we'll live there, but um, I think it was really good, really interesting, and um, yeah, look forward to talking again soon. No worries. Thanks for having me. So that was episode three of season three, a deep dive into one more of the 48 different growth levers, which I'm covering one by one. And these will take up most of the next couple of episodes in the next preceding seasons. So we've only done six of these so far, including podcasting, publicity, M&A, outdoor partnerships, programmatic display, and that's it. So there's many, many more to go. And they're going to be very popular and easier to follow than some of these strategy episodes. I'm working on search marketing episode next, followed by social media and much more. So lots of work to go. Thanks again for following. I really appreciate it. And as always, if you have any feedback or comments, make sure you just DM me on LinkedIn or tag me on Twitter. Uh, A Dose of John is my Twitter handle um, and the official John James on LinkedIn. Otherwise, you can find me on Instagram under the handle Champagne Society. Remember to give me a follow or to receive notifications on your podcast listening app. 
Otherwise, I'll be uploading these full episodes on YouTube in the coming weeks. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.